We are continuing today in the context of self-righteousness and salvation. And we come to a passage of Scripture this morning that touches on the promised rewards of following Christ. And that's in contrast to the stunning effects of self-righteousness. So please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 19 and stand with me. We're going, to, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30 today, but I want to read 23 through 30 so we get a bit more of the context as we look at it. So Matthew 19, beginning at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Lord God, we thank you for your word and thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would teach us. Teach us what it means to follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wondered if God notices how much you have sacrificed to follow Christ? Have you ever felt like you've given up so much to follow Christ, you've given up so much because of Jesus, and you've wondered, will God make it right? Have you ever wondered, what's in it for me? If so, you're in good company, you're not alone. Peter told Jesus, and he's speaking on behalf of all the disciples, the other 11, and he said, we've left everything to follow you. So what will there be for us? What's in it for us? So what did he mean by that? And what did Jesus promise them and all who would follow? And then how should that affect us today as we follow Christ? Well, we're going to find out as we look at what Peter asked and then how Jesus answered the question and then, so what does that mean for us? We're going to start in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 19. It's a statement that Peter makes and he makes it on behalf of all the disciples and he says, we have left everything to follow you. And that's an interesting thing coming from Peter, that we've left everything. Here was Peter who 
had a wife and had a house and I'm not sure if he had the wife in the house at this point when he said this. But here's a guy where you'd say, well, you left everything, really? Now, first, uh, first thing I want to say is don't use this as an excuse to sin and leave your, your husband or your wife. Okay? That's not what this is. When, G- when Peter said, we've left everything to follow you, he was thinking about when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and followed. Now, it might seem that Peter thought that Jesus was being unfair to them. What, what are we going to get? What's in it for us? It, it might seem that he thought that they deserved or maybe had even earned eternal life. Maybe they had earned God's favor. And some people actually think so, but there's only guesswork involved in that. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us what was inside Peter's head when he said what he said. It's possible that that was going on. I prefer to think that that Peter realized that that they had done what the rich young ruler wasn't willing to do. And so they're thinking to themselves, hmm, so he didn't do it, but we did. So what is going to be the outcome of that? He He was dealing in real time here, by the way, with real truths. But here we sit, the other side of the cross, and we think, well, how come he couldn't see the gospel so clearly? Peter's saying, look, we've followed, we've left everything, what will happen next? It it seems that he is in need of some assurance of what's going to go on, about the benefits of following Christ, about about the blessings that come along with following Christ. So I prefer to think that that Peter asked the question, maybe more out of a, a little bit of ignorance of what's coming next, and maybe some insecurity about I hope it's all good. And, and I don't think there was any full strength, concentrated, undiluted self-righteous going on, self-righteousness going on for Peter. I think probably there was faith mixed with doubt, mixed with some insecurity, and a little bit of self-righteousness thrown in. So the question is, what will eternal life be like, basically? What will being saved result in? What can we look forward to? What will be the outcome? What will be the reward for those who cling to Christ's righteousness instead of their own? Those that are justified by faith and not by works. So we need to say a little bit about self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3 tells us, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Speaking of people who, who... knew that there was a righteousness from God, but made up their own brand of righteousness that was really not righteousness. The idea of God's righteousness is an important concept. God's righteousness, that is who he is in and of himself, independent of any outside forces, that he is holy, that he is good, that he is great, that he is just. All the things we know about God who he is from what the Bible says, the true, absolute perfection in and of his own self. That's God's righteousness. Our righteousness, the Bible tells us, is, is filthy rags. If we try to come to God in our own sufficiency, in our sinful state, we can't stand in the presence of this perfect, holy God. We can't do it. See, God's true righteousness and 
And our false righteousness are polar opposites. They don't even exist in the same universe. Apart from Christ, we cannot have right standing with God. That is what Jesus was getting to when he said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So self-righteousness won't cut it in any universe. Apart from Christ, we will have no right standing with God. But here the rich young ruler, we've just come out of the rich young ruler who came to Christ saying, what good deed should I do, can I do, to get eternal life? Self-righteousness are the thing that we do to try to make ourselves right with God. The things that we think God will be pleased with so then he will accept us. Even Christians think this way many times. Of course, unbelievers are going to think this way, but a lot of times Christians think this way. You, you may even come today and you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, I can relate with Peter because I've been a Christian a long time and I've given up a lot of things. I've given up promotions. I've given up some relationships. I've given up uh, a lot of things that I could point to that that I did because I love Jesus. And, and now I'm getting a little weary. The mileage is, about, is showing a little bit more. And I'm starting to wonder. My, my vision's getting a little foggy. What is it again that, that we're looking for in the future? I can understand that. I think we all go through times like that where we wonder, okay, what's the promise again? We can't earn our way to heaven by any good deeds. We know that. That is a foundational truth that is taught in Scripture. So if we are relying on what we do to get ourselves to God, we're under the curse of the law, the Bible says. Galatians chapter 3 says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So no one is justified before God by keeping certain rules and regulations. The Bible makes it clear the righteous person shall live by faith. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was added so it would become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So it shows us our need of a Savior. It shows us that we must fall upon the grace and the mercy of God in Christ and trust in His plan of salvation, not our own. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there is a righteousness from God that has been revealed apart from the law. It has been made known, and the law and the prophets both testify to this righteousness. And the righteousness, very clearly, says that it comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how you get God's righteousness. In fact, Jerry Bridges, Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington wrote a book called The Bookends of the Christian Life. I like that title. And they have two bookends. They say, if you don't have these two things, everything in your life is going to fall down because you don't have these two huge bookends. The first is the righteousness of Christ. The second is the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to have the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life or you're just basically building a house of cards. You're propping yourself up on your own ideas. Now let's go in to Jesus' response to Peter's statement and question. First thing I want you to notice is Jesus doesn't correct Peter. 
Look at verse 28. What Jesus does in verses 28 and 29 is give some assurance to Peter and to the rest of the disciples. And, and then he adds a, a word of warning in verse 30. But Jesus' answer contains encouragement. It contains a bit of warning. And then he launches into a parable in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, that basically illustrates this. And what it shows is that that, it, that Jesus is giving a gentle, loving rebuke. Basically, don't trust in your own righteousness. I am I'm the Lord, he is saying. You've got to trust in mine. So verse 28, Jesus says, truly I say to you, every time Jesus says this, you've got to, to listen very close because it's going to be a very significant thing. Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man sits on his throne, and he's going in now to some some promises, he's going into some assurances of what is going to happen. And what it seems to be happening is that Jesus is, is assuring them of truth. He's refocusing them. He's leading them into truth. He's being a good shepherd. That's what he's doing. He's being a good shepherd to his sheep. He's directing their hearts, as 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says, into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So in the context that we're in, starting in verse 18 of, of, of Matthew, of humble faith in Christ, and then on into chapter 19, the error of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, what we see Jesus doing here is assuring his disciples of what's to come. Actually, he's assuring his disciples of both present and future blessings, rewards, so that they would guard against self-righteous deception, that they would follow him humbly, that they would trust him with all their hearts. I kind of picture it like a mid-race encouragement from the Son of God. Uh, like you're, you're watching someone run a marathon or a half marathon or just a, a long race. 10k or something like that and and you're on the sidelines and and let's say you're even coaching them you're saying you can do it keep going i'm gonna be at the end when you get done don't stop so it's kind of like jesus is is giving some some encouragement to his disciples that maybe were growing a little weary of what was going on a lot of rejection of jesus going on here so he's saying you're doing great you can do it. I'll be waiting for you at the finish line. Actually, it's more like um, I'm going to carry you all the way through and I'll be with you at the finish line. And there are rewards now and in the future, especially at the end. Now, I want you to note a couple things. The first is this. Don't get thrown by the term reward. That word is not in this passage. Either is the word blessings or outcomes, or, or anything like that. So, but I don't want you to un- misunderstand the concept of just me using the term reward in, in, in a sermon title and then in a sermon, okay? Um, we live in a world of words, and words mean something, and words are important. But sometimes we get hung up on certain words. We think of reward, and we think, ah, oh, that's what I get for doing something really good. You could also, by the way, get a reward if you're walking down the street and you see a, a big diamond ring on the ground and you pick it up and then you see a sign that says lost diamond ring and it's the same ring. So you call the people up and they give you a reward for giving it back. 
So we think of rewards in terms of maybe what we earn, or things like that. You might even be asking, why would you even use the term reward when there's no descriptive uh, word given here? Because uh, God didn't describe what he was giving here. He just says this is what's going to happen. So why not say blessings? Why not say gracious gifts? Why not say outcomes? Well, maybe because I'm twisted in my mind and I wanted you to wrestle with the idea of rewards. Maybe I wanted you to think about it instead of just passing right by it. In the context of this passage, though, it's kind of like debating the difference between taking a walk and taking a hike. Both of those things, you use your legs to go somewhere and you're not running. So, uh, you can call them blessings, gifts, rewards, whatever you want. You can call them gifts of God's grace. Just make sure you know what we're talking about here is something you don't earn and you don't deserve. We are talking about these things because Jesus was. They're the results or the outcomes of following Christ. Two times in this passage, he talks about, um, once he talks about you who followed me, and Peter says, hey, we've followed you. So it's all about following Christ. The second thing I want you to note before we go further is this is not about the rewards. It is really easy for us to seek what is promised in terms of what we'll get. We're wired that way. What I want you to see about this passage is it is all about the Lord God Almighty. It's so easy for us to open up the Bible and say, I know it's got to be about me somehow. This is all about the Lord God Almighty. It is crucial for us to recognize this is not about some carrot being dangled out in front of us that if we just try hard enough that we'll get. And it's, it's surely not about everyone getting a trophy. One of my pet peeves from my coaching youth coaching days is everyone getting a trophy i've told you this before uh losers shouldn't get trophies and plenty of times my teams have been losers so they didn't deserve a trophy it's the way life is so it's not about well god's going to give everyone the same thing in the end it's not about that but it's also not about trying really hard to get the little carrot it what it's about and if you think about it it's about following christ in the power of the holy spirit it's discipleship and not self-righteousness. Not our own works. It's about worshiping God by grace through faith. Think about it for a moment. Self-righteousness is, is us trying to get ourselves to God. It's about man's faith in the wisdom of man. True righteousness is God-given faith not resting in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God who raises the dead. That's what the Bible tells us, that our faith should not rest in the wisdom of man, but in God who raises the dead. So I realize that we think of rewards in terms of things we earn. But it's not one of those, I have to do this to get that. Think in terms of, this is what God will give in grace to those who follow. Let that be your compass as we, as we go through this passage. What we see in this passage, the response to Peter's statement as well as his question is that Jesus gives promises. Jesus gives several promises here in verses 28 through 30. And the key word in these next few verses is the word will. Mark that word out. These are things that will happen. The first thing we see that will happen 
is that Jesus, our glorious Lord, will sit on his throne. He will sit on his throne. Look at verse 28. Again, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. That, that assures us that he is going to reign forever. That he is going to be worshipped as God. That he will rule as sovereign Lord. So that it's all about him. Everything else from this passage comes through this idea. That he is going to sit on his glorious throne. And what do we know about God? We know that God never changes. We know that God can always be trusted. Therefore, everything he says is is sure it stands it's significant for us and we don't have to doubt it think of it this way created things change the creator god does not change so it is because of who he is it is nothing about us it is about heaven it is about eternity it is about god's eternal plan now there's something that you know And you knew it when you went to bed last night, and you knew it when you woke up this morning, and you know it right now. And we know all this, we know this about all of us, and here's what we know. That every single one of us is, has been tainted and infected by the fall. We've been tainted and infected by sin. And and sure, some of us have more noticeable uh, things on the outside, the the things that people see, the results of our sin or, or what other people's sin that's been done to us are more noticeable to, uh, for some of us in our lives where it just kind of goes before and everyone notices. But every one of us is equally infected by the fall and by sin. And why this is important to know is that we are looking forward to a day when God is going to make all things new. That, that we, like Romans says, we groan inwardly waiting for our redemption. See, Jesus says he is going to be sitting on his throne in the new world. The word is regeneration. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Once in Titus 3, verse 5, speaking of the individual rebirth of Christians. Here it's talking about the rebirth of the whole creation. The the renewal, the the regeneration, the new world where the son of man will be ruling on his glorious throne. So it's all about him and his throne, but it's on a day when everything will be made new. The rebirth basically, of the earth under his sovereign dominion at his second coming. Paradise will be regained. It will be a global parallel, as one writer put it, a global parallel to the individual rebirth of Christians. That Christ will reign over the entire world and he will do so with righteousness and peace and immediate justice. He will be worshipped as supreme Lord. That's the day that Jesus is talking about, that he'll be sitting on his throne. And so we who are tainted so much by sin, we who are so uh, affected by sin every moment of every day, we, we yearn for this day. We, we groan inwardly 
in hopes for that day. So you think about your life for a moment. And maybe you think about a relationship that's been completely trashed. No hope of it even being put back together in your, in your mind. Or of job loss, or of health concerns, or of anything that, that throws us off balance to the point where, where, where we don't know which end is up. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are waiting for the day that all things will be made new. You're waiting for the day where you will be in the new world with Jesus and sin won't be affecting you anymore. We can't even picture that day, but we want that day so badly, do we not? We yearn for that day. We ache for that day. Jesus Our glorious Lord promised that he will sit on his throne. He will do it. It will happen. There is no chance that it might be a hoax. There is no chance that you believed in urban legend. This is fact from God. He will reign. Jesus also, the second thing he promised here is that he is going to give glorious privileges to his apostles. Now, that's not us. We're not apostles. I know some people call themselves apostles. They're not. There, there are a limited number of apostles. And there's only 12 thrones, by the way. We wouldn't fit on all these, on these 12 thrones. Not even our group here would fit. See, verse 28, Jesus says, You who have followed will sit on 12 thrones. Now, if Jesus is going to sit on a real throne, so are these apostles. Some people will say, no, they're figurative thrones. Well, is Christ's? You who have followed will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there have been a lot of books written about, about this verse. And I am under no illusions that I really know what this is about. And, and most of those authors don't either. It's all guesswork. It's all conjecture. It's all, well, we think we're going to tie this with this, with this, with this. We think this is what it is. But but OGK, only God knows. And we won't figure out until he shows us. So, I'll take a stab, but I am under no illusions that I will even get it right. I'm just going to tell you what I think. Um, Now, here's the thing. Jesus says, you who have followed will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which also can mean ruling. But the idea of believers judging is a familiar thought to us. But what is less clear is the idea of the 12 apostles judging. That's, that would be, that's kind of a tough one for us. And then you get into what, who, which 12? Because you know Judas isn't there. Now, here's the thing. When, when Jesus was saying this, he knew full well which 12 it would be. Peter did not know when he asked the question, well, we have left everything. Little did he know that Judas was an imposter, that he was a fake. It seems to me that it's going to either be Matthias, taking Judas's place will be Matthias or the Apostle Paul. And the reason I say that I lean towards the Apostle Paul is because he's called an apostle in the Bible. Matthias is never called an apostle. So, what are they doing exactly? whether it's the 11 plus Matthias or the 11 plus Paul, what are they doing sitting on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, there's three primary options. Number one, it could be that the 12 apostles are, are judging national Israel, the nation of Israel. 
Number two, it could be the 12 apostles judging the church that would be kind of standing in for Israel. Uh, The third idea is that it's the 12 uh, apostles judging the church. Excuse me, that was the second one. The third one is the church judging Israel. That it's the symbolic thing and the church sits on the 12 symbolic thrones judging Israel. Now, I think the best option is the first I mentioned, that the 12 apostles will judge the nation of Israel. And what they would presumably be judging Israel for is their rejection of Jesus the Messiah. That they, that they would be judged for rejecting Christ. So Jesus promised to sit on a throne. Jesus promised to grant glorious privileges to his apostles. And then he promises... The third thing he promises here in verse 29, that he is going to give gracious gifts to all believers. Now, here is where you can really start listening up because this is about us. Now, this is referring to what we're going to get. So if you have that question, what's in it for me? Listen up now, okay? Jesus promised gracious gifts to all disciples. That we are going to receive from God. We're going to receive things from him. Gracious gifts. So here's what he says in verse 29. Everyone... That's all believers who have left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. Key. That's key. For my name's sake. Will receive. There's the promise again. It will happen. You will receive a hundredfold. Now, if you left your mom, you're not going to get a hundred moms. Okay? Sorry. That's not going to happen. But let's just say. Let's just say that you are a believer in Christ and you come to faith and your family says to you, we disown you. We forbid you to come to faith in Christ. You've done it. We're done with you. By the way, that is happening to people all over the globe. When they come to faith in Christ, they lose their family. It doesn't happen very often in America, but it happens. So let's just say that happens. Or let's just say that that you come to faith in Christ and your group of friends says, you're a Jesus freak now. We don't want to hang around Jesus freaks. We're, we're kicking you out of our club. We don't want to be with you anymore. And you lose your friends. What Jesus is saying is, all who have, for Christ's sake, left things will receive much more than they lost. You will gain much more than you give up. Here's why. It's a simple one. Christ's sacrifice eclipses ours. There is no sacrifice we could make that would even minutely be in the same universe as Christ's sacrifice. Everyone who has left houses or family or lands will receive a hundredfold, literally manifold more, much, much more, and will inherit eternal life. So if you have an inheritance of eternal life, that, that same thing that means be saved, the rich young ruler was looking for eternal life. He says you will inherit eternal life. So the blessings to come for the 12 apostles and all disciples will fall far surpass all sacrifices, any sacrifices that they make. You can be assured of that. 
Anything you give up for Christ in this life, you will receive much, much more. Actually, now, in terms of peace and joy and, and fulfillment, and then in the life to come, immeasurable. My God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's going to blow your mind what God has in store for those who love him. Let me point out two specifics here. One regarding now and one regarding future. For now, we have in Christ the church of Christ, the family of God relationships that are brother and sister and even spiritual fathers and mothers that are many. So if by chance you lose your family because of your faith in Christ, that they all they lock the, the, the door on you, they kick you out and they change the locks, you have a family in the church that is much, much more numerous than your physical family. Brothers and sisters in Christ for, but who, with whom you will spend eternity praising the glories of God's grace. And that really is the idea of the future is that we have an eternal possession in heaven. That's, Jesus says you're going to etern- inherit eternal life. That's our position in Christ as opposed to the condition that we experience here on earth. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5. We who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.23 We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that day when Christ will sit on his throne. We've got to look at verse 30, because there's a word of warning in verse 30. And it's it's really it's really a promise too, but it's a warning. We see in, the, in, in Christ's kingdom there will be new, a new order of priority. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It, that contrasts God's grace for the childlike trusters with, with God's judgment on, on the self-righteous. I want you to keep in mind that God has authority to make promises. Some people make promises they'll never deliver on. Some people make promises with no authority to, to keep those promises. But God also has the power to make good on His promise. He always provides what He promises. There is never a time when you can say, God didn't come through on what He said He would do. 
So what we have here from Jesus are assurances. They are guarantees. They are absolute fact. They are, it's like the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's like irrevocable. It's trustworthy. It's irrevocable trust from God. And because we have that, and because Peter was hearing this, with the disciples, they were being pointed to these truths. But it's like Jesus is saying, don't let the rich young ruler be your role model. Don't copy the rich young ruler and think you can do this all by yourself. You've got to guard against self-righteous deception. And so, so must we today. It is so easy to be deceived. So how can we guard against patting ourselves on the back for all of our good deeds that we think makes God really happy about us? and want to give us lots of things. You know, for thousands of years, kings built castles. And they built castles not just so we could go on vacation someday and look at some cool castles. They built castles to protect their people and their land. To protect their wives and their children and and their people and their belongings from marauding bands of enemies. Can you picture them? The marauding bands of enemies. And they're going after, but they they come up to the walls of the castle and they're like, we can't get in. But here's an interesting thing. Over the years, these marauding bands of enemies devised ways to get into the castle. They, They made up catapults so they would catapult things over the wall and burn the thing down or whatever. And they they made battering rams that would bust through the doors. And they would even they would even um lay siege on the castle and even for weeks or even months until the people would come out and surrender. It's interesting. It took 13 centuries, but in 13th century England, castle architects started creating ingenious design features to prevent the marauding bands of enemies from getting in. They would do things like... like um, build the walls of the castle at an angle sharply outward so that it would be harder to you know bring up the tower on wheels that you can jump over the wall with or or uh you know they would um they would uh, put arrow slits in the walls where they could shoot through there and not get shot themselves or they added i don't know why it took them so long but they added huge food storage areas so in case it goes under siege they even started digging the wells inside the castle walls they should have done that from the beginning but here's the thing. They had to be really innovative to, to, go, to go with the changing times and, and battle the enemy. And so must we. We've got to have the full armor of God on. We've got to be just as creative and innovative in guarding against the spiritual dangers of self-righteousness and pride and arrogance that so easily traps us. It's like quicksand. Ephesians chapter two, verse, I mean chapter six, verse two says that our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So as we take up the full armor of God and the word of God and prayer and, and, and salvation and all these things, how do we live now in, in light of the present and future rewards that Jesus promised? See, Peter and the disciples 
took what he said and it's always little by little teaching he taught them and then they kind of wavered again and he taught them again and he's strengthening them for the future it's amazing what happened after christ ascended to the father and the church just blew up in in a in the best possible way in in evangelism and discipleship and and it just it just mushroomed because god was using his church but what do we do right now knowing that we have a future and also blessings now but we also live in a tough life what do we do let me give you four things i might even give you five things if i have time but i'm going to give you four things for sure i hope (laughs) number one um here's what we, we we can do is count and communicate the cost and the benefits of following for christ's sake don't leave out the benefits you know, Jesus uh, surely said, you need, to, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He surely said that. But he also said, you're going to get much more than you gave up. I think we should share the costs and the benefits of following for Christ's sake. And not get caught up in all the earthly things that we get caught up in. I think a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read a book about his life. I'm reading another that... that prominently features him and and he was a believer who opposed hitler who hitler had killed but he said dietrich bonhoeffer said when god calls a man he he bids him come and die and so he took jesus's words literally at age 39 he actually died for his faith in christ but here's what jesus said matthew 10 he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. See, following Christ means dying to self. Painful because you have to say no to yourself. But it means such things as death to selfish ambition. The boastful pride of life. It means such things as death to out-of-balance attachments. If there's anything or anyone that we are attached to here on earth more than Jesus, God doesn't want that competition in your life. Very first sermon I ever preached at this church, I mentioned Abraham and Isaac. And I asked the question, what or who is your Isaac? What is God asking you to let go of? Because you've had, you're too attached to Think about with with me for a moment. Abraham, you probably know the story. But Abraham was called by God to go and he had to leave his his family, he had to leave his friends to follow God. Now they went with him, but he had to start going. He had to step out in faith. Nothing was to come between him and God. So there came a day that God said, now I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Isaac. And you give him up to me. You sacrifice him to me. It's very interesting that Abraham immediately went and did. He believed God. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He he had right standing with God because he, he responded by faith. He was justified by faith. That's why he's called Father Abraham, the father of all those who believe by faith. But let me ask you a question. Abraham, Isaac, 
father and son. So when, when Abraham got Isaac back, did he get him back in the same way? I think not. I think not because what God had showed him is that now Isaac had to come through the mediator. He would never be his son in the same way again. For, from then on, everything had to pass through God Almighty. It's like us. Everything's got to pass through the cross. Everything's got to pass through Christ first. Death to self means death to worldly success. Wealth and power. I like to think of success as, a, as like a costume that just covers up our insecurity and our emptiness and our loneliness. Dying to self means such things as death to the lust of the flesh, to ways and lifestyles that we have held dear and we have engaged in that are not honoring to God. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, Galatians 5.24 says, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So that where we once pursued selfish pleasures, we now pursue with equal passion that which pleases God. Death to self means such things as death to the love of money. I heard recently of a very successful businessman who gave up most of his wealth to fund ministries to the poor in other countries. And he said something about wealth, and I thought, wow, I want to hear what this man had to say because he took what Jesus said very seriously. So I want to know what he said. And he said something very simple. He said that we are inevitably defined by our possessions and positions if we're not careful. We are inevitably defined by our possessions and our positions if we are not careful. See, unlike the rich young ruler, the man that I heard of really did sell most of his possessions and give to the poor. And he want, his goal, this man's goal, is to help the poor become self-sustaining by giving them some help with, with starting their own businesses. They found that that was an effective way to help many of them. But this man put feet to his faith and broke through the, the chains of, uh, even the spider's web of the love of money and the love of, of material success. And that's a form of losing your life for Christ. We've got to count and communicate the costs and benefits of following for Christ's sake. All those who lose their lives for Christ will gain and find greater blessings in Christ than in any earthly treasure. And here's why. Christ becomes your greatest treasure. It's, it's like Lamentations chapter 3 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. I'm hoping in the Lord because He is my portion and my inheritance. Number two, you want to guard against self-deception of self-righteousness and you want to humbly serve the Lord, then you've got to maintain a humble heart through confession and repentance. Confession and Repentance. That's what the rich young ruler didn't show, but true disciples do. Remember that everything you're blessed with comes from God and that you're not deserving. And you sin, but your identity is changed when you come to faith in Christ. You've been forgiven. You have a new name. But you still sin. And you need to confess that sin. You need to, to turn away from it. You and I are more prideful and arrogant than we think. 
I know I am more prideful and self-righteous than I think, and I'll tell you why. Because I can see it in everyone else. It's like when you get a certain model of car. You never had this model of car before, so you never noticed that car. But then you get that car, and you notice everyone on the, on the road has that same car. You notice it all over the place. If you notice self-righteousness and pride in other people, it's because you're self-righteous and prideful. But you can take heart. God changes hearts. He can change yours. He can change mine. You can test your heart. Do a little EKG. Here's a few questions for you. Do you live by a list of do's and don'ts? Do you really live by a a list of do's and don'ts? And that makes you okay with God. As long as I do this, God's happy with me and I'm all right. Do you look down on those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Do you feel you're better than most other people? How long since you identified a sin in your life and repented of it? And by the way, do you resent it when others point out your faults? Do you readily recognize the sins of others but not your own? Do you think God owes you a good life? If so, you're self-righteous and prideful. What you've got to do is let go of that. You've got to release your grip on self-righteous things and by God's grace, do battle with sin through confession and repentance. Number three, be gentle with everyone. Be gentle with everyone. Note that Jesus gently answered the rich young ruler and Peter. It's a constant temptation for us to to trust in our own righteousness, which is false, instead of clinging to Christ's righteousness, which is true, and we become harsh, we become bitter, we become angry, we become even dominating. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you with gentleness and reverence. It's like we need what I would call the electric fence of relational love in the body of Christ that both confines us and comforts us. There is freedom that encourages us but also warns us of of danger. And that's what brothers and sisters in Christ are good, good for in many ways. The last thing is, number four, realize that everything will one day get its true price tag. I know that people overinflate themselves and I know that people discount true disciples. But God's eternal valuation will stand. That's the one that counts. I think maybe the rich young ruler, and we've got to remember him, in part is a call for us to bring our currency in line with God's economy to, to value what he values God's new order of priority many who are first, verse 30 will be last and the last first A.W. Tozier said the meek man knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him and he has stopped caring he rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values He will be patient to wait for that day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Let me just say that what you hear in your head all the time isn't always true. But what you read in this book is always true.
Tell yourself the truth. Realize that one day everything will get its true price tag.